Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello, I'm Kenneth Kukie, Senior Editor, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, The Economist Asks, has Silicon Valley become too powerful? Silicon Valley began as a disruption. New technology firms, new ideas, and they challenged the established dogmas and the dominance of the old industrial companies. It was a decentralized world and one which seemed to offer newer, more efficient and productive ways of doing more or less everything, from distributing music to distributing movies to banking to dating to finding a decent walker for your dog. But are we now seeing a distrust in the Internet, if you will, an irony where the Silicon Valley companies originally were challenging the, the man, the status quo, the old industrial behemoths. Now, actually, they have become the new industrial behemoths, and they themselves are being challenged by other people. Part of the problem is that these new companies in Silicon Valley have rather opaque modes of operation. And when their practices are brought to light, as they recently have been with scandals surrounding Uber, All too often, we do not like what we see. The same economic problems that some hope the Internet could alleviate, stagnancy, inequality, inefficiency, are now the ones the technology giants might be exacerbating. At least, that's the argument made by my guest today. He is Jonathan Taplin. Jonathan is a former tour manager for Bob Dylan and a film producer. He is also the director emeritus of the Annenberg Innovation Lab at the University of Southern California. He is also the author of a new book, Move Fast and Break Things, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. In it, he explains his concerns with the vast monopolies that now dominate the Internet. So, first of all, Jonathan, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. My initial question to you is, what led you to take an interest in these companies and these problems? So, it started from my relationship with some of the members of the band, um, specifically Levon Helm, who was the drummer of the band, uh, who made a very good living off the royalties from the band's recordings, even though the band stopped recording in 1979. The CD came out in the late 80s, and so it was continually making a decent income. And then in 2000, Napster arrived, and that royalty stream from recordings just stopped. And it just so happened that he also had got throat cancer in 2000. And so he actually didn't have enough money to pay for his health care. It just seemed to me incredibly unfair that, as a guy at Reddit said, well, musicians have no right to earn money from old recordings. They should just be out touring. And, of course, that was the way musicians made money in the 17th century. But in a world of 5 billion smartphones capable of downloading music, that just seemed... A ridiculous idea. So why do we blame Facebook, Google, and Amazon? YouTube, for instance, is by far the largest streaming music service in the world. It has almost 60% market share in the streaming music service. And of course, everything on YouTube is there for free. Quote, unquote, users 
put this music up. Now, musicians can file or record companies can file a takedown notice with YouTube and maybe in a week it goes down. But then two days later, it goes right back up from another user. So it's a kind of game of whack-a-mole. So if you think about music being free on YouTube, then it's very hard to get people to subscribe to paid music services. Even Spotify, which had told the music business that by this point in their growth, 80% of their users would be paying for their premium service. It's only 25% of their people are paying for the premium service. So the internet has disrupted the business model for musicians. Well, I think a lot of people in business would not feel too much sympathy with that because they feel like the internet has disrupted everyone's business model. So should we really preserve the old classical 20th century form of remunerating musicians through the the copyright rules? Or does the new technology obviate these rules and we're in a transition period and we really don't know how to do that? And the band member from the band is just simply an unfortunate victim of that. This extends far beyond musicians. Newspaper revenues have fallen by almost 72%. The number of people who actually work at journalism in the United States has been cut by 50% in the last 10 years. And it's no better for photographers. Filmmakers are going to be disrupted pretty soon. In general, if if you look at Facebook and the news business, maybe 50% of people in the United States think that of Facebook is their news source. So Facebook goes to the New York Times and say, hey, we've got a great new idea. It's called Instant Articles. And we'll just keep your content inside Facebook. We won't link out to the NewYorkTimes.com anymore. And, but we'll determine how much revenue you get from the advertising. Well, after your experiment, the New York Times realized that was a horrible idea. The revenue had been cut radically, and they finally had to get out of it, even though it was kind of one of those offers they couldn't refuse. So let me see if I understand this. Whereas before the problem was that with the recording industry, that it was a problem for culture, here it's a problem for democracy because these large web platforms are sort of eating up the revenue that otherwise went to journalism companies. That's correct. But it's more problem for democracy even than that, because these platforms pretend that they have no control of what the content is on their platforms. So if we think about fake news, which involve Brexit, involve the Trump campaign, and almost involve the French campaign, how could that get out there? Well, it gets out there because Google and Facebook are these open platforms when anybody can post anything and make it very easy to disseminate fake news. If you're a kid in Macedonia who wants to make five to 7,000 bucks a week off your fake news website, you can do that. So I think it's problematic in a lot of ways. For instance, um, the incredible proliferation of ISIS videos on YouTube. Well, that's there because YouTube claims they can't do anything about that. But you notice there's no pornography on YouTube. They have very good artificial intelligence filters that keep the porn off the site. And I argue they could keep all sorts of things off the site. So why is it that you think that these great big platforms that have so much wealth and control so much of the access to information and are so smart in terms of artificial intelligence are refusing to do things that seem kind of reasonable? The Economist had a recent cover in which what looked like huge oil platforms, only they were labeled Google, Facebook, other words, making the point that I've made in the book, which is data is the new oil. So if data is the new oil and, say, three companies, 
Amazon, Google, and Facebook are basically vacuuming up most of the data and using it to sell. They need as many users as possible. And for them, a viewer of an ISIS video, which, by the way, they happen to put advertising on, is just as good to them as the viewer of a cat video. These things mean that you just have to attract the maximum number of users, get the maximum number of amount of data, and how you get it is open to, you could put an Amazon Alexa in your house and have the microphone always on and gather up data, or you could do it by a smartphone or any way you want, and they will extend their reach farther and farther. So Bertolt Brecht's, one of his great aphorism is, first food, then morality, in Mother Courage. And what he means by that is there's a time for sort of earning an income, and then there's a time for actually thinking about doing the right thing. Do you think that Silicon Valley is obeying the rules of technology as it's written, which is they sort of move fast and break things, they do the right thing, and that this is sort of the natural evolution of things that now they're going to learn morality and work better as better corporate citizens? I think it's interesting that recently Facebook ran full-page ads in most of the British newspapers telling the user how they might determine what is fake news or not, as if their algorithms couldn't decide the URLs. You know, one of the things they said, check the URL. Well, the algorithm could do that. Obviously, the way YouTube does it is they put this AI filter up for porn, and then it goes into a separate queue, and then a human looks at it and says, no, that wasn't porn. That was a National Geographic thing about African natives. So that can go up, but the rest can't. So the idea that you might filter out killing videos on Facebook, but maybe you should have a human look at it and then determine whether it was okay or not, does not seem to be do that much harm. Well, when they did have uh, human being human beings, editors, looking at the news to determine where they would rank it in the news feed, they got into trouble too because it looked like those human beings were biased in favor of liberal sites. And I have some sympathy with Facebook, not a lot, but I have some sympathy to recognize that they do want to have a mediascape that is simply not dominated by the authority of the New York Times and the National Review and even Fox and smaller players that you've not heard of. Um, Courts, for example, which is a smaller news platform, would never actually move up the ranking because the algorithm would be unsure if this was true news or fake news. That seems like a real problem. The problem that Facebook had with human curators for the trending topics thing is a really interesting case study. So, Fox News and Breitbart was pounding on them all spring last year, saying they were biased towards liberal media. So eventually Zuckerberg gave in and said, "Okay, we'll take the humans out of the equation completely and just let the algorithms do it. And if you look at the chart, fake news begins at that point, because needless to say, if you have 500,000 bots, whether they're in Russia or they're in the United States, I don't care, you can bomb a news item on Facebook and force it up to the top. You can push Holocaust denying to the top of the Google search engine because the algorithm doesn't know anything. All it knows is there's so many people hitting that item that it must be true. So let's go back to culture because I'm so interested in how you see the differences today versus when you were a young producer. How do you describe these differences and what can we do about it to preserve this this element of what's precious in terms of our understanding of ourselves through our culture. You think about the music business last year. 
80% of the revenue went to 1% of the content. The problem with culture right now is we have a kind of winner-takes-all culture. It is maybe the nature of the Internet. I think that was a great insight that Peter Thiel, Larry Page, Jeff Bezos understood, that the Internet, because of the network effect, would be a winner-takes-all business. But if winner-takes-all in culture, that becomes problematic because Gabriel Garcia Marquez was not a winner per se, in terms of the number of books, but he was probably as important an author as anybody, certainly more important than James Patterson or something like that. And so this is the necessity to try and preserve that. And if we have this kind of culture in which we can't support the kind of what I call middle-class artists, that's problematic. So what can we do about it? I believe that what you're identifying is indeed a problem But it's hard for me to see a solution that doesn't seem very onerous in terms of meddling with the business models of people and where we would otherwise want them to organically evolve. Let me just give you an example. Google and CBS are both in the advertising business, basically. So Google has a 30% margin, net margin. CBS has a 10% net margin. I would argue that the difference, that 20% gap, is CBS spends a huge amount of money on content, talent, and other things. In other words, reinvests into the content. Google is a free rider. Have you ever seen a CBS executive and their lunch bill? And have you ever seen what an engineer works like in their cubicle? I'm not saying that CBS is not an inefficient operation. But let's be clear, Larry Page makes a lot more than Les Moonves. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So I'm still, I still want to press you finally on this issue of, well, what does it take for us to have this more egalitarian structure, shall we say, for how we distribute the profits related both to content and distribution? It requires clearly regulation. So I'm sure you're not going to argue that we need the ministry of uh, margins that determines what a suitable output level is per company. So how else do we sort of fiddle with capitalism to make it more respectful to culture? At the outlier, there's the possibility of antitrust action. And, you know, in the past, we've tried to deal with what I think are natural monopolies. And so how we dealt with that in the 1950s when we had AT&T as the monopoly phone company was we said to them, okay, you've reinvested a huge amount into Bell Labs and you have all this patent portfolio that is incredibly rich. You invented the transistor, you invented the laser, the cellular system, the satellite, the solar cell. You have to license those patents to any other American company for free. So out of that came Texas Instruments, Fairchild Semiconductor, Motorola, Intel, ComSat, all these incredible companies that were built on the free patents that came out of Bell Labs. Now, that is one possible solution. I don't, in my book, say I have the answers. All I'm saying is I know what the problem is, and here are some possible solutions. But what I would hope is there's a mid-grain where companies understand that if they don't reinvest in the cultural aspects, then I don't think we're going to have a really vital culture. So my final question is this. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? I'm optimistic. I think there's a little bit of a resistance. When I started this book a year and a half ago, this was thought as reasonably crazy, the idea that maybe these organizations might not be helping culture and might not be helping democracy. 
And I would say today, there's a lot of people thinking about that. And so the very fact that people are considering that makes me optimistic. Great. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's all for this week's Economist Asks. If you have any comments or thoughts about it, please email us at radio at economist.com. If you like our journalism, remember you can subscribe. In fact, based on what Jonathan Taplin has said, you have a moral obligation to become a subscriber. To do so, go to subscribe.economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. Economist.